Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome to the Paleo View. What is this? 254? Don't, don't even try. <laughs> nah. 255. Oh, it always fails. Even when I think I'm trying. Um, we are sitting with a room full of awesome people. Thank you for everybody coming out today to help us record the Paleo View. We have zero notes. Uh, zero, zero notes today, which normally, do you feel awkward? Because you're the one that usually I, comes So I normally, we have a topic planned. We you're already banging have, on the table. We usually have a question that is like going to guide the, the topic. And I usually spend, depending on how much that question's in my wheelhouse, between like 20 minutes just like making sure I've got my facts straight to three or four hours if it's something that I really need to read about, preparing for the show. And then we record with, I record with notes in front of me, sometimes several pages, and right now? Sometimes we pause the show mid-recording and she goes to PubMed and reads more if I, like, ask further questions. You You don't know that because Matt cuts it out, but... She's the queen of putting me on the spot, though, so when we're recording and she'll be like, oh, like, follow-up question on that topic, I'm like... There was not a follow-up question. There was... Listen, I, I ask what the readers are thinking, or the listeners are thinking. Do you actually know that? We're going to no. find that out today. <laughs> That's actually a thing that happens. Maybe yeah. it's just what you're thinking. Maybe. So typically when we record, it's usually like Skype, audio only. It's in the evenings, usually in the early, you know, Monday nights, typically for a Friday night podcast. We don't look at each other because Stacy doesn't like making eye contact. <laughs> it makes me sound like such a bad person, but it's awkward. <laughs> So instead of making awkward eye contact with, with you, we're going to make awkward eye contact with this room full of people. And ourselves. Cause and ourselves in the, the video. Set up unauthorized video. Um, I just didn't ask for permission. It's right. a little bit different. Yeah. I authorized it. Um, so you had said you had a joke you wanted to show? That was it. Right there. I just did it. Ha! That. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I That's what like, you had set up? Yeah, no. I, that you planned in advance? Yes, and it, see how like naturally I did that, and like nobody knew that was something I had thought of this morning. That's true. And, and then you tried to. She tried to I, tell me in the kitchen. Like She's like, like, "I thought of a joke. Do you want to hear it?" And I was like, "No, I want to hear it when it happens." I so I obviously overhyped it. It wasn't like the most brilliant <laughs> knock knock joke in the world that was going to have everybody like rolling out of their seats. Yeah, that's what you were expecting. Yeah, like I thought you had something good. It was pre-planned. No, I have a ten-year-old and a seven-year-old, so all the jokes I know are knock knock. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are knock knock jokes. Yeah, slash funny puns. Okay. Sorry. That's cool. So we thought what would be fun is to give you guys an opportunity to ask us questions. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things that happens is, you know, we have a form on our websites. People submit questions. Um, We get way more questions than we have time to answer. So we tend to sort of 
like here's a representative question that sort of covers these six people's questions or whatever. But now you get the opportunity to, you know, almost like um, we've done book signings together where we do a Q&A in advance and um, they're really fun and we've never recorded them. So this is sort of our opportunity to kind of do that. And um, you probably, none of you were expecting that you'd, you'd have I feel this. like we, I feel like we communicated that, that it would be questions and answers. I think we said Q&A. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, came, you came with questions. Ready. She's ready. <laughs> she did a little more pre-planning than you did about that joke. I just have a lot of questions, actually. I'm always prepared. Normally, we start the show with a little bit of a recap. Maybe you could tell people about your experience in D.C. with your family. So, we drove up Friday. Um, it was by far the longest road trip we have ever attempted as a family. So n- none of the four of us are good in the car. Like that's, let's just preface it with neither one of my husband ever get into a zone when we're driving. That's not a thing we've ever experienced. Neither one of us like driving like other than commuting when you have to. Um, and so we, we switch off, but we both get exhausted and cranky. And then none of us, like we don't sit so all of us just being confined and having to sit for a long period of time is just painful for all four of us. So, um, you know, the last time we, we went on a road trip, it was a nine-hour drive, and we broke it up into two days because that was, that was how intimidating this was. So this was like 10, it was supposed to be 10 hours of no traffic. It was closer to 11. It took us 13 by the time we stopped. And uh, it was, we survived. It was okay. We were tired. Yesterday, my seven-year-old was, uh, she didn't get enough sleep. None, none of the kids were really okay yesterday. And then we decided that it was a really great idea to take them to D.C. and walk from the National Mall all the way to the Lincoln Memorial in what must have been like 140 degree heat It was index. warm. And, I mean, to be fair, this was the thing with my 10-year-old, he's hiding back there. This is the thing she wanted to do in D.C. was see the, the monuments. Like, that was... And I was like, they're really great at dusk. We can just drive around. <laughs> and I was... I don't think my kids are going to be awake at dusk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a thing. Um, so there was uh, multiple meltdowns on the way. That was a, that was a real thing that happened. Um, but we made it. And we walked one direction because we got there and we're like, hey... Uber. Well, it also thunderstormed about 10 minutes after we arrived at the Lincoln Memorial. There's no way. Matt actually walked back because we couldn't all fit in an Uber and Wesley didn't have a car seat and blah, blah, blah. So he and Wesley walked back to the subway in about, I don't know, you said two blocks right before you hit it. The skies opened. So it was really like, like literally we were like could see it. It was right in our eyes and then started pouring down rain. I'm like, Wesley, we're running. Yeah. But the two of them had a speed probably 400 times greater than us as a group. Like, um, it was like the more people you add, the slower we go. Yeah. It was, it was so bad. It was, but we made it and we saw all their memorials. And as a DC, you know, Northern Virginia native, I've never actually done that full walk before. I've done all the things independently, but not like walked from one to the other and so it was nice it was a beautiful walk and for us it was really neat you know my kids are dual citizens and they're getting steeped in american culture so for them these are historical events that they're learning about in school and for us um you know i was actually telling my husband like i think even if we had done this trip five years ago i don't think i would have been as engaged as i am now but i am i am assimilating 
uh, slowly but surely, and now that we're applying for citizenship, like it has a lot more meaning for me to go and see these monuments and really understand some of the, the nuances of, of American history. And so for me, it was a really neat experience. A little ironic that it was Canada Day. Yeah. <laughs> little, little ironic that we were doing all the you know great American monuments on Canada's 150th birthday. Um, but you know, I, I, at the same time, maybe that made a lot of sense because it's is kind of like my two homes sort of melding together. Um, so yeah, no, it was a fun day, and then the kids fell asleep <laughs> at a good Very time quickly. last night, and they're yeah. all much happier, much happier today. There's been a lot less refereeing. Yes. So uh, we have two of five with us today. If the you quiet, hear them the quiet on the podcast, too, by the, the way. The book nerds who we thought might actually go out into the library and, and read or be quiet. So and instead they're playing card games behind us. But that's fine. Right. They're being quiet. Yeah. Do we want to bring them up to say hi? <laughs> Did you guys? Such an attention seeker. He hears the opportunities. Like what? <laughs> Do you guys want to come say hi to everybody? Sure. Middle Hello, child syndrome. Here. Don't forget about. <laughs> <laughs> I like books. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good summary. <laughs> ben, ben says, don't forget about me. He's always concerned that we're going to forget about him. Yeah. Adele's the one that you have to yell at to put down a book to go outside and play. So that, that's about... That sums him up. That's about it. Um, yes, my name is Laurel O.T. And um, I actually work with people to help improve their health and happiness as a health coach. So work a lot with families, people with autoimmune disease, gluten sensitivity, because my family has a big, long history of celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, basically every family member. So my actual question is very personal. So my oldest daughter is four and pretty definitively celiac. We had a long road that I won't get into. My second daughter is two, and because of our long road with the first one, we haven't yet introduced wheat. And we're talking about she's starting preschool this coming fall, and it would probably be a good idea to at least understand what sort of reactions, if any, she's having, even though I may personally not think she necessarily needs it, and she likely will react in some way, given every other member of the family does. <laughs> I don't know that for sure. So do you have any recommendations as far as what do you do when you know you have a family history, but you also want to balance the making sure you're able to communicate any health concerns to schools and things like that when your kids are little? So like, so I can understand the full situation. Yeah. Is she going to be fed preschool meals at preschool or are you no. going to get to pack I meals? pack everything so you're thinking more about cross contamination with her kids yes, lunches and group if there's snacks. an issue as she gets older and maybe less cool with mom always packing her things uh, <laughs> uh, just knowing where those lines are in the conversations we need to be able to have with her about if we've noticed reactions you know what those may be I mean I don't personally feel like she ever needs to be introduced in a perfect world, but I think that's impractical for the world that we live in. So it's a way of having the conversation. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's some interesting science to support the idea of maybe introducing these top eight allergen foods, at least by way of isolating reactions, before weaning. Yeah. So there's there's some science to suggest that we can actually reduce the 
percent of overt reactions, right? So these are reactions that are documented. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's more than just allergies, although most of the studies that look at this look at allergies and not sensitivities, yeah. um, but that we can actually reduce the percentage of um, kids who are having reactions by introducing these foods prior to weaning. Yeah. Um, and it's not completely understood, but all the mechanisms are there. probably has something to do with the antibodies that are coming in breast milk and probably something to do with gut health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, you know, once, once you've missed that window, um, things that affect a reaction are things like gut health. Mm-hmm. So um, probiotics, yeah. high vegetable intake, uh, moderate saturated fat, high omega-3s, like these are generally things that support a really, really healthy, diverse microbiome. Avoiding as part of your everyday diet gut irritants but we can handle you know we we can handle some from time to time there's a big difference between an occasional food and an everyday food in terms of how our body reacts Mm -hmm. and if you actually give your body time to recover and if you're not having really intense right allergic reactions then you know there are plenty of people in the paleo community who can go have pizza once a week like Mm -hmm. that's a real thing and they really aren't having a reaction and they really are still healthy um and so Gut health is really big, and then other things that impact the immune system. So stress, mm-hmm. generally two-year-olds aren't very much, yeah. <laughs> um, sleep. Yeah. So again, generally young kids tend they you know if they're overtired they just fall asleep yep. in the car and they figure out how to you know they get. Towards school age, when, when more cultural factors kick in, that's where you start to see more sleep-deprived kids. But when they're really young, they're, they tend to sort of self-regulate that. So stress, sleep, and activity are things that all modulate the immune system. So if you've got, you're, if you're doing all the things for a healthy gut and you're doing all of the healthy diet and lifestyle things, then there's a higher probability that you won't even see a reaction. Right, yeah. And you wouldn't unless that food started creeping in more and more. Yeah. In that case, it may not be instructive, but it might give you a sense of ease, knowing that if she picked up a goldfish cracker off the floor and threw it in her mouth before a teacher got to stop her, because these things happen in preschools, that it's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, I think in my situation, I would be, I would be torn. Yeah. I would be. <laughs> That's where I am. interested to try it and scared. We, we did do that with Wesley, right? Yeah. So Wesley is our entirely paleo child, yep. and um, never had any allergens at all when yep. he went to preschool, and he was three and a half or four when he finally won. So later than yours, he was definitely weaned. He never was introduced to anything. Um, so we just said that there's celiac in the family, there's gluten intolerance in the family and Wesley doesn't eat wheat period. End of story. There was never like any further conversation that needed to have with the preschool. We brought snack Um, And at this time, especially in this area, like teachers, there are so many kids with allergens that they're, they're really well versed and they have no problem dealing with that in the classroom because it's not just gluten. There's egg allergies, there's nut allergies, there's all kinds of stuff in the classroom that teachers are dealing with. So um, for, for Wesley, he went to that school for 
several years and he only ever got exposed to gluten twice and the first time it was like the thanksgiving meal and they served cornbread and the teacher just assumed like corn and it wasn't until he was halfway through that she was like oh my gosh, I never read the ingredients on the box that the parents had to bring in the ingredient list of any food that they brought in that was shared. She checked and of course it had wheat in it. She immediately called us and was like, do I need to call 911? No, 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 I think he'll be okay. And just like Sarah said, he had such good, strong gut health and immune system from being raised that way that we saw zero reaction in him. Whereas our other boys, if they even just a little bit like it's a nightmare right so um in the same thing um actually we went to a barbecue with a couple that's here who had um gluten-free buns on one table and regular buns on another table and wesley just took a big old bite of a big old gluten bun and i remember like slow-mo no and then I did this finger sweep and tried to like pull it out of his mouth and Matt was so embarrassed. Matt was like, stop it, it's fine. But um, you also tried to make him throw up. No, I did not. But he was totally fine. And I, I think, you know, if you don't have anaphylactic reactions in your family, no. um, then to me, that's the choice that I made. And my mom is actually anaphylactic, but none of us are. And so it was so highly improbable that if he got something that he would have that kind of reaction, then you just need to like let the teachers know, please communicate with me if something happens that I can watch for a reaction after. That's okay. that's the choice that yeah. we made. Yeah. That we, sounds good. We it sounds did. a lot like our family. Yeah. Our, I should have mentioned our oldest through the healing and trial process. We Paleo was instrumental in that process. So while we're not 100% paleo now, we're we are very close to that side of things. So our youngest has grown up pretty much that way. So very good and source the gut health, I would imagine, um, and things like that. So, so yeah, she probably has a good point. She might not actually even show a reaction. I mean, the oldest has been exposed to gluten, has ex- very extreme celiac like. Well, and then time. I mean, so there's that's a different. Scenario. There's there's both extremes. So um, my youngest is very sensitive to she actually has a, a stronger reaction to dairy than she has to gluten. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I wanted to know if it was A1 versus A2 dairy. Right. Like that was something that I wanted to know. Um, and so we got given some camel milk. You know, it's raw, A2, it's the lowest reactivity milk. I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize for just Did you get table. a finger whack? No, Sorry. I just, I just, I know it happened. I felt it. And I was Sorry. like, oh, Matt's gonna be mad. It's, right. it's gonna happen. I understand. I, I'm a hand talker. I can't. We both are. It's like taking everything I have, just I to like keep my like, hands together. Uh, you can gesticulate all you want up here. <laughs> the table is a perfect whacking during gesticulation. It is. It is. It's really an emphasizer, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it actually is almost there to, like, improve my gesticulation. That's good. Um, And so uh, I basically tried it on a Friday afternoon so that if she had a reaction, she would have the weekend to recover. And her normal reaction was throwing up. And if it it was just a little bit, she'd just have really bad acid reflux, which would cause obstructive sleep apnea when she was sleeping, which is also terrible. So, But, like, I knew I will have, you know, if I'm up all night with her, I'm going to have the weekend to recover, like, and we're going to try this. And we tried it together. So I tried it 
first. That's bold. <laughs> and after an hour, I felt fine. I normally get a migraine within 10, 10 minutes of having dairy. So then I let her have a glass, and she right away, Mom, my, my throat feels scratchy. I don't like this. Like, my, my mouth feels weird. And I was like, well, hang on. Let me, you know, let me see inside your mouth. And I'm thinking blisters. I'm thinking anaphy- like anaphylaxis. Her tonsils had, within five minutes, had swollen up to the size of grapes. Oh, my God. And then I realized that this is actually something that's happening now as a cross-contamination type exposure. And that's consistent with what we now think the function of tonsils are. So we now think the function of tonsils is actually as a like pre-sensory organ for antigens in food. Um, and so it's actually a sort of an early detection system for you are consuming a food that has food antigens in it. Um, and there's actually some science showing that upwards of 50% of kids awaiting tonsillectomies, their tonsils will shrink back down to size if they go on a dairy-free diet. The other 50, my, I, my thought on that is the other 50%, it's just a different food antigen, right? Like, and we just need to figure out what the food is. Um, so, funny story, though took nearly two months for them to shrink back down to size so it wasn't just a weekend of recovery it was and the only thing was you know her throat just felt weird so uh so my my biggest fear actually during that time period was that she would get ill and have to go to the pediatrician's office while her tonsils were that big because I they do you know it's happened a couple of times since Mm -hmm. right so it's actually happened it happened right at the end of May I don't know what she had um, so it happened right at the end of May, and her tonsils are swollen now, and they're starting to go back down. Um, so we're actually in a nut-free trial with her, just in case. That was it. She was in a nut-free classroom last year, and she didn't have nuts most of the year. And she had had nuts a couple of times right in that time period. So I'm like, well, how would you feel about being nut-free for a little while? And she's like, great, I'll try it. So, you know, unfortunately, this is, this is the thing with elimination and challenge, is yeah. it involves challenge. Yeah. And we really, that is the best way to isolate food sensitivities. Um, it's far more accurate than any other testing method. Mm-hmm. Um, and it involves that scary part of challenge and what happens when it doesn't go well. Right. Um, and so having a plan for, you know, to pick, pick your timing so that you know not only she'll have time to recover, but you will because That's it's going to be more demanding. Summer, cause, um, yeah. Not in preschool, and I have baby three coming September, so <laughs> it's gonna be a little crazy. So if it's no. a sleepless night, right, might yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, although maybe you could tag team in September. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, okay. these are these are the types of decisions that, as parents, they're always nerve wracking. Yeah. Because we just we want it's much easier to just know everything in advance and not have to do these things and. You always want the best for your kids, and you want your kids to be sheltered and happy and healthy. Yeah. Um, but, you know. The other thing that you said was that you're trying to plan for the idea that when she's older, she might want to make mm-hmm. the choices for herself. Yeah. And having older child, like, they'll make those choices for yeah. themselves. Right, yeah. Um, and before she's 10, 11, or 12, when... You know, she'll start to be independent. She'll go to friends' houses. Um, like Cole goes to a friend's house and he eats gluten, and he comes back and he's cranky and he's bloated. I don't want to be around him. Well, Sarah's gotten a little taste of that tween angst right now. It's not fun, but it's his body. It's his choice, and he's doing it on his own. You know, and he 
he and I have talked about, like, you know that this is what happens, right? And he's like, well, yeah, but it was what I wanted. I'm like, okay, you know, like, that's your choice. And I just think it's important, you know, my parenting philosophy has always been we do what we can to help our children be their be their best selves, mm-hmm. but it's not a responsibility to define who they are as people. Yeah. And so it might be that Cole decides when he's old enough and buying his, his own food, because he's not doing it with my money, um, <laughs> that he wants to... You know, eat cocoa eat, puffs three times a day. Eat cocoa puffs and macaroni and cheese yeah. and whatever every day. Well, she said it, not me. I just yes, but the, I, I just I'm not speaking from personal experience from when I moved out at all. <laughs> we grew, we weren't allowed any sugary cereals when I was a kid. I didn't know what any of them tasted like. Turns out they're all pretty gross. But I had to try them all to find that out. <laughs> but I think the the point is just that pontificating about what may happen 10 years from now um, is difficult at best. Like, having been where you are, having three children very close together, and then kind of looking back and now being like, oh my gosh, I have three older children? First of all, I don't know how that happened. Second of all, um, it's a completely different world. Like, who they are as people, the choices they make, the lives that you've led up to that point 10 years from now. So to me, it's really like there will be exposure before 10 years from now. There's there's nothing you can do. There will be exposure. Yeah. So if that's something that she wants to do on her own at a friend's house, she's going to know what her reaction will be by that point, in my okay. opinion. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think that's not totally fair. I'm going to ask one last quick thing. Do you know, I've done so much research on this, and everything seems to indicate that if you're not exposed to, until you're exposed to gluten, you can't actually become celiac, which as in you can't be born with it. Nothing has explicitly said that, but that seems to be the implication from everything I've read. Do you know if that's true? Because I can't find anything to formally state it one way or the other. So... Gluten is the trigger, right? Um, So it's gluten stimulating excess zonulin production, causing a leaky gut, just eventually destroying the structure of the microvilli. Um, So if gluten's the trigger and there's no gluten, right? But does that mean that you're not celiac? If this is a chicken and egg, right? So if the first time you have gluten, you're going to have a celiac disease. Were you celiac before? Right. I think that becomes semantics at that point. So, um, you know, you have the genetic predisposition. You have the um, immune dysregulation. If you're missing the trigger, you're missing the trigger. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't actually develop the disease without it. Mm -hmm. But if you are going to develop the disease the first time you have the trigger. They can't diagnose it until you're diseased, right? What about cross-reactive foods? Um, So there's no evidence that... um, Because it's not actually... In in the case of celiac, it's not actually antibody-driven. There's antibodies... But the it's a different mechanism that's it's actually, a different immune response. Yeah, so it's it's actually the zonulin response that's driving the damage to the intestine. Um, 
there are antibodies against gluten that are formed in celiac and also tissue transglutaminase, um, which is also driving intestinal injury, that part of the immune response, but it's subsequent. So, um, so there's, there's, I've, I've never seen a paper that has talked about celiac disease coming from rice exposure, for example, or corn exposure or dairy. Um, but it's, in part, it's because... Everybody's been exposed to wheat. Everyone's been exposed to wheat, and the idea of gluten-free kids is still very, very new. Um, so that might be something that, you know, there'll be a case study later on, like a case of celiac and a kid who's raised gluten-free. How did this come about? I've not seen anything like that. Um, I've also not ever seen a paper that has isolated a zonulin response to a different protein. So that would imply that it really is gluten. Ultimately, I think the answer to your question, though, is that you can't be tested and proven to have celiac disease if you don't have that buildup and the trigger. And usually it's not one exposure. No, because you actually have to have a severe level of damage um, before it will have enough for them to be able to die. So is what they say. So you have to have quite severe damage to the intestinal structure for it to show up in a biopsy as conclusive. That's the blood test too, I've heard. So the problem with the blood test is there's a very high false negative rate already. Hypothetically, though, you could have really high antibody production with a fairly low exposure. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's so much variability in terms of how many antibodies we produce to what size exposure, and then whether or not those antibodies are detected. So it would be less reliable without a large amount of exposure. Okay. Got it. I'm going to let somebody else... Someone else take, take the hot seat. Now they're they're totally warmed up. <laughs> yeah, can you just you gotta, over? you gotta move over. At least you're close to the microphone. Yeah. Hopefully it's a pretty short question, but um, you're. Uh, oh, my name is Amy. Um, I have a question about. You were talking about um, weaning and then exposures. I have a six and a half month old right now. And I could tell maybe from the skin, it's kind of like my skin, there's eczema going on, but not, not too strong. I was wondering what would be the optimal time to start solids with them? I've been kind of delaying it to have his gut close more. I don't know when the best time would be. So the gut is typically mature enough to start digesting solids right around six months, but there is some variability. Um, um, but what's really interesting is that introducing solids can actually force the maturation of the gut. So um, we see this in um, babies who are forced into solids early because of some something that happens. Um, like the 1980s when doctors told mommies to put rice cereal in the bottles mm-hmm. to make the baby sleep all yeah, night. Yeah, so it actually, there's, um, there's two different series of of cell signaling that drives the maturation of the gut. There's the normal maturation, which the gut's ready around six months. And then there's this like, we seem to have this like backup um, signaling cascade that can be triggered by solid food and force the maturation in a very short period of time. And it's probably a survival mechanism from evolution from mothers 
dying that would give babies that were two or three months old a bigger chance of surviving by they would then have to move to pre-masticated food so it would have allowed them to have a higher survival rate um so that being said ideally you're still going to wait for that first phase of maturation but it you can't there's not a there's not other than looking for your baby's interested they're reaching for your food right they're not spitting things out when you put them in their food in their mouth like there's those signs that are all the baby led weaning type signs Mm -hmm. but in terms of knowing if your baby's gut is ready there's 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 not there's not but if you try and it wasn't quite ready like rest assured biology is a wonderful thing and there's this backup mechanism to bring that gut back up to to snuff really quickly if if it was a bit early so um so from that you know, from that, from the from the gut perspective standpoint, I mean, you can be doing probiotics. You could be doing something like a little bit of sauerkraut juice. You could be doing sips of broth. Um, you could be easing in slowly with some things that are going to help in terms of preparing the gut for for solids. Um, but then the other signs that you're looking for are, you know, the tongue thrust signs. You know, the um, Interest, you know, my kids were trying to grab food out of my mouth at four and a half, five months old, um, aggressively. <laughs> so, um, so you know, it was it was like a oh, it, clearly, clearly, this is you think this looks fun. Um, so you're looking for you're looking for that interest. Okay, and you, the you other, did baby living. Yeah, the other years. things you want to look for are. Uh, making sure that your baby's sitting up straight mm-hmm. because you you know you want to Justin to go down. So there's like a list of I think it's like five or six a things. Higher chance of on kellymom.com. It's finger grasp. It's tongue thrush, uh, thrust. It's sitting up straight. Um, they tell you that they should have teeth because that's a biological sign that like the physical changes are happening as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the things that I really went with, and all three of my boys started solid at very different times um, based on what their needs were. Finn, who walked at seven months, started solids at four and a half months. I did not. Cole was nine months. My oldest was nine months, and I wanted to start Finn later, but he would scream every time we all ate at the table. Like he would just like he was just really needed to be a part of it. And we let him. We put a frozen banana in a mesh baggie, and we let him chew on that for about a month. Like that was that's all he had, but that was technically starting solids, right? So it really just depends. And for us, that was like enough to keep him quiet while we all ate dinner. Um, but yeah, but I think, you know, I, I really just think that sort of parenting is instinctual and I call it the lazy approach. Matt and I didn't know that we were attachment parents until much later. And I was like, Oh, all this stuff that we we're doing cause we're lazy, like keeping the baby in the bed when it was nursing, like that's a thing, <laughs> but it's also, I think partially instinctual. And I think there's a lot to be said about the biological drivers that we all have about the instincts to take care of our young and that kind of stuff, you know? Thank you. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the paleo view. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Look at it. The lighting's really good. Look, it's like, it's enough eye contact. It's a lot what's happening. You're, you're basically making eye contact with yourself there. <sighs> <laughs>
don't want to make eye contact with myself. Like a mirror. No. But backwards. Why would I want to look into a mirror? Because you're beautiful. I hope that Matt's recording this, because these would be the bloopers. Yeah. <laughs> this is what actually happens. I do feel a little bit awkward with everybody. Do you guys all want to move over? Like, just, like, two chairs? <laughs> just, like, you don't have to be in the, like, spit zone. <laughs> Did you bring your poncho? <laughs> There's just, depending on how worked up we get about certain topics, I'm just saying, there's a reason why we normally record audio only. Okay. In our pajamas. Sometimes, some of us are in our pajamas. Her throat just felt weird, right? Like, her tonsils were giant. Can I mention, please? We have a technology tutor here this afternoon. That's something you need? Like uh, technology tutor? <laughs> Clearly. Oh, sorry, guys, I have to go. <laughs> that was epic. That's, and that's one of at least seven, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Announcements that we'll get? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.